going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? Uh, it's been pretty good. It's warm enough to go outside, but uh, viruses still kind of keep things awkward. But, gotta keep it happy. Fair enough. Whereabouts are you guys right now, weather-wise? Sunny and 20. Sunny and 20? Not bad, man. Especially for this beautiful 420 today that we have. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of 420, uh, one of my favorite burger places in Calgary, Burger 320, opened a new location. Burger 420. Seems fitting, given that today is April 20th, but oh, also great. given that it is April 2020 as well, Tim, so, you know, you have a whole month of 420. 420, 2020. Yeah, great time to open a restaurant, and the food was awesome, and it's actually really funny because uh, he was uh, advertising the grand opening, which was today, uh, on TikTok and Instagram, and one of his ads, he had a fake pot plant, yep. and it got taken down from TikTok. After like 5,000 hits. Really? Because they thought it was a real plant. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But overall, the food was pretty good? Oh, yeah. So uh, I had a burger that had uh, mac and cheese, uh, bacon, and grilled cheese, and a bunch of other good stuff on it. And Chelsea had a chicken burger that had ham, pineapple, and spring rolls on it. It was amazing. So it almost sounds like a mix between... How do I describe it? It's almost like a chicken burger with, I don't want to say Chinese food, but it's almost like you have the, because you had ham and pineapple, correct? That was yep. on there. And now did you have, no, obviously there's no sweet and sour sauce. If there was sweet and sour sauce on that burger, like not like an actual drizzling, but you know, if you got a brush and you brushed it onto the chicken breast, actually be kind of good. I would be honest with you. The burger did have some sort of uh, kind of soft, like, I'm not sure it was brushed on, but it was definitely like it. It had a really nice flavor profile to it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so if you come out to Calgary again, we'll have to take you down. Solid. I often wonder if they had put it on there as soon as the chicken was cooked, because I know with a lot of the sugar that's in it, like, if you if you were to put it on the chicken, you could potentially burn it if you leave it long enough. Oh, yeah. We learned that the hard way cooking with maple syrup. Yes, and definitely we have the episode to prove that, Tim. Yeah, yeah. So, how's you doing, man? Not too bad, not too bad, you know, just be keeping myself busy, and I actually started watching some Netflix stuff. Most notably, I did watch Tiger King. So, is it actually any good? It's one of those shows that, it, it, I was very on the fence whether I was going to like it or not, because I'm not really into those kind of reality type shows, and obviously this dude, like this Joe Exotic guy is a real guy. And I was like, okay, yeah. whatever, watch it. It was like watching a train wreck. It was like, you know, you watch it. A few things I took away from that. Number one, I am not... Part of me was not willing to believe that Joe Exotic was a real guy. He was just so over the top. Because you got to realize, he's a gay, gun-toting zookeeper. With two well, husbands who's addicted to drugs. quotation marks here. I know, like, you got, and I said to one of my coworkers because I was talking to her, I was texting her, and we were bullshitting about Tiger King, I said, he almost seems like, almost like a wrestling character, he's so over the top, and I realized that there are people out there who are that freaking crazy, and they are that nuts, 
but still you watch it and you're like, okay, this has definitely got to be an act. This has got to be like he's hamming it up for the cameras. No, this is just him. Counterpoint. He has face tattoos. You gotta be some sort of fucking crazy to have face tattoos. Does he? Actually, I don't think he has face tattoos, to be honest with you, if I'm not mistaken. I'm looking at his mugshot on Wikipedia right here. And there are tattoos going up the neck onto his face. No, there isn't. It's just on his neck. No, they come onto his chin. No way. Come on. That's face tattoo. That is not a face tattoo, even though I will admit, though... Okay, let's talk about the haircut a little bit. Because this is a haircut, and you know, a lot of people were making jokes about being in quarantine and, you know, the social distancing or whatever, because, you know, the hairdressers are shut down and all these things. This almost seems like one of those kind of haircuts, but it's kind of like if you mix that with the haircut that John Daly has. John Daly, who's like the golfer who's really over the top, he has that kind of hairstyle. Uh-huh. It's almost like you mix those two together. It's like a half-hearted mullet is what I would call it. Oh, like there's yeah. a certain amount of not giving a fuck in there. Oh no, there's definitely no fucks given in that haircut. But you know, that's funny, even watching Tiger King, and like I said, it was one of those shows where I didn't know if I was really going to like it or not, because I'm not into reality shows, and a lot of people are talking about it, and I feel that people who talk a lot about these shows... When I, when I end up watching them, I'm just like... I either have one of two reactions. I think, okay, this is as good as people are talking about, or I'm not really seeing the the appeal, or I don't, I just don't really get it. Like, I started watching The Office. I gave up after four episodes. Because there was one character in The Office, and that is Dwight. Fuck, do I hate Dwight in that show. And not because of the character himself. Because he is played great by... John, what the fuck's his name? Um, Bill Hader. And, and, and he's fantastic in the show. But I gave up on that show because Dwight reminds me of this guy I used to play fantasy football with. He reminds me so much of him, and I hated that guy in our league. He was a Why, guy, was he just a dick? Or? Yeah, he was just a total butt-hurt fucking idiot who would throw a fucking shit fit if he lost by half a point. Which he oh. did. He lost to me one week by half a point, and he bitched to our commissioner about it. Because, well, this is bullshit. You know, that should have counted. And our commissioner messaged me. And he's like, yeah, so-and-so is bitching about it. I'm like, he fucking lost. Like, what does he want? He wants to win, obviously. Yeah, look, everybody wants to win. But you know what? You've got to be somewhat of a good sport about it. Like, in our very first year of the, of the league, we have a last place trophy. It's a shirtless picture of Tim Tebow. I mean, that's a pretty good thing. Pretty good prize. Well, here's the funny thing, is that this is our last place trophy. So this is our, like, inspiration to not finish last. My buddy finished last. I ended up getting the T-Bow because he won in the final week and I lost the final week. Damn. Now, think about this. I was not dead last. I still ended up with the last place trophy. Did I throw a fit? No. Was I a good sport about it and took an embarrassing selfie with it? Yes. This Did guy... Of I, course. Yeah, this guy was dead last in our league. Not not my buddy, but buddy who you know, reminds me of Dwight. Excuse me. Is that he finished last 
he refused to put it up because that was one of the uh, things in our league. You had to put the picture up on your wall and you had to take a selfie with it. He did neither of them and he rage quit the league. Eh. Yeah. It's just like, really, dude, like, come on. Sucks dude direct the office for you, though. Yeah, and that's funny because, like, I've seen clips of, like, The Office on YouTube and social media, and the moments I've seen are really funny. Like, the guy who plays Jim, I love, and again, I was just telling the story about Dwight. The fact that Jim fucks with Dwight in that show is the number one reason why I will probably give it a second chance because I want to see him totally fuck with him. Yeah. It's hilarious, and I love it. Yeah, I know I've watched the odd episode here and there. It's like... I think it's something that if it was on TV and I'd catch it, I'd watch it, but I don't think I could sit down and watch however many seasons there are religiously. Yeah, and I know that certain people do watch it religiously, and hey, you know what? Good for them. You know, they if they enjoy it and it's not hurting anybody, good for them. Good, you know, the cast is really good. There's a, even nowadays, because that show is going back to like 2005, if I'm not mistaken. Go back to the first, like, season, or couple of seasons. You look at some of the actors in that show, like, Steve Carell was in it. Bill Hader was in it. Uh, the guy who played Stu in The Hangover was in it. Like, you see these kind of actors, and you're like, okay, I recognize that person, that person, that person. Like, wow, I can't believe that they went on to do other things. Yeah, well, that show, I think it catapulted a lot of careers, although Steve Carell was already on the up after Anchorman and a bunch of other movies he was in. Yeah, and it's funny because when he did 40-Year-Old Virgin, I remember the studio really didn't want him as the lead because he had really only been a supporting member of, like you're saying, Anchorman and whatever other movies, but also The Office hadn't come out yet here. Yeah. It was just coming out. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, like that really catapulted his career. Yeah, so, it's alright. I mean, like I said, I've seen the clips on YouTube and social media. It's fine. I might give it another chance. Other stuff I've been watching, I've actually been watching a lot of King of the Hill. I, I love King of the Hill. I think that show is awesome. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's one of the it's shows... probably one of the best character-driven shows to come out of the U.S. in a very long time. Oh, easy. And it's one of those shows that you go into YouTube, I think the appreciation for King of the Hill has really grown over the last several years because the people who grew up as kids when it was on are like our age. They're now adults. Yeah. And they go back and rewatch it and they think, wow, this show is very well written. It's very funny. It's not like The Simpsons where certain episodes were really over the top and they had these crazy plots to them. King of the Hill was very grounded in that and they had, like you're saying, character-driven episodes and some of the morals and some of the things behind the episodes, like, I would love to see King of the Hill nowadays with what's going on in the United States with the Trump administration and the coronavirus going on. I would like to see Hank Hill's opinion and view of the world on that. Because if you go back to the 2016 election, I was saying to somebody, I said, you know what? I really don't know who Hank would have voted in that. Because if you watch the show, like, he's definitely Republican. But he's also been a very gray area whether or not he really always votes for them. Yeah. Well, think about such an interesting show because Mike Judge, I think, uh, because like King of the Hill and Beavis and the Butthead were contemporaneous, right? Very much so. And I feel like because Beavis Butthead took that very explicit, over-the-top style of humor, 
it reserved a lot of subtlety in King of the Hill. It did, but the funny thing is that if you, even if you go back and rewatch Beavis and Butthead, is that it is very over the top, but the episodes are, I would actually say they're actually pretty well written. If you really think about it. Oh, I'm not saying they're not well written. But the I'm funny just saying that King of the Hill is more subtle. Oh, in its approach. yeah, absolutely, because it's supposed to be based on real life, and that's the mundane things is where they find the humor of it. Like, I'll give it an episode. Like, there was an episode, I think, in season... Season was in season five, season six, where Hank meets Hal, and they're in the hardware store, and he goes, no, that's a... He says, no, that's a straight pipe. I'm looking for a L pipe. All pipes are L's. He goes, yeah. No, he goes, all pipes are straight. He goes lowercase maybe and he goes he goes uh he's like i'm looking for an l pipe it bends at an angle his pipes can't bend all pipe no he's he said all pipes can't be straight if they did your department would be selling those u pipes behind your shoulder <laughs> i don't know why shit like that fucking finds it funny but going back to watching king of the hill now while i really think king of the hill is a very well written show my favorite character is still cotton the most politically incorrect things that he says in that show is freaking hilarious. And I think the other thing with Cotton is it's very obvious that Cotton is someone you do not want to emulate because the show makes a very strong point that through Cotton's bad, like, aggressive life choices, Cotton ends up alone. I wouldn't necessarily say that because he had Dee Dee throughout the whole show. It's almost presented as predatory, right? Yeah, I guess so. No, but because he, like the well, big thing about it is like, like he, like uh, Hank's dad's from a generation that didn't divorce a lot, and here he is. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I mean, King of the Hill was always one of the shows that they could always tackle those sort of issues. Like you look at, you know, you look at divorce, you look at affairs, you look at other kind of things in every, everyday life and it's always well written and it's always very funny yeah I think the only episode I thought was a like they really missed was when Luann was involved with the pork guy yeah that's that true that was a miss it, it was a miss but there were certain aspects of that show or that episode where you can kind of see where they're going because Luann is very naive and very trusting and you have Peggy, who's very controlling and very... What's the word I want to use here? Um, fuck. Like it's doting, almost. Doting, yeah. It's very... Like, her tensions are very good for Luann, but she's not make, letting her make her own decisions. And the port guy is the exact same way. Yeah. So you have the two extremes, right? And you have Luann in the middle, who eventually makes her own decisions and says, okay, you're crazy. And while I don't approve of what Peggy's saying and doing, it's up to me to make those kind of decisions for myself. Yeah. Although I think at the same time, all the YouTube poops definitely helped. All the YouTube poops are fantastic. Well, it's funny. Even some of the vine compilations I've been watching recently, it's just so stupid that I just can't help but laugh at you know what? I'm going to make you feel old for a second, Tay. What's up? YouTube poop. People have been making YouTube poops for over a decade. Well, Tim, you can't make me feel old because you and I are the exact same age. 
I never said I didn't make myself feel old. That's true. But if, <laughs> but if you're trying to make me old, I'm making you old with me. Oh, there was another one I dropped on Chelsea yesterday. She was like, Jesus Christ. And then came back with, well, you're older than I am. Shit. I know. And then you're just like, honey, where do these gray hairs come from? Shit. Actually, I was just thinking about this a couple of months ago. Do you know who actually passed away? Was the guy who voiced Peppy in Star Fox 64. Really? Yeah, I didn't even realize that. I was like, oh, that guy died? I didn't know that guy was old. Yeah, because there were some very famous people that died. Like, he died. Wrestling announcer Howard Finkel passed away. And, you know, and obviously there was the sad deaths in the NHL and all kinds of good, all that terrible stuff. But also we can't forget about the deaths in Halifax with the shooting, right? That happened yesterday. Yeah. And it's it's just kind of bizarre because it's living in Halifax. It's, you kind of heard that some parts of Halifax were not too great, but... When I was living there, I don't think there was ever like a mass shooting or mass violence effect. Now that I think about event, now that I think about it. But in fairness, I mean, how many years of your life did you really live in Halifax, though? Uh, about seven or eight. Seven or eight. yeah, so it wasn't very long, right? No, because I mean, you lived in Halifax when you were seven or eight. Then you correct me if I'm wrong, because you lived. Then you moved to the UK, right? Yeah, then moved back. Yeah, so, so like, so like, there might have been there might have been like shootings or violent kind of things in Halifax. Nothing like that. No, not to that extent, but probably probably because we probably weren't thinking about it, right? And obviously... Well, I think uh, if you heard, like, like 15-plus people dead, you'd hear about... That's national news. You'd hear about it. Yeah, it's true. And, I mean, even at that time, look at Columbine, right? Look how many it, deaths that was. Yeah. Or even just... I imagine a candle, like the... Well, like, the shootings in uh, Mississauga. Like, I think that was 10 people. Still national news, because it's not common. Yeah, and then there was the Parliament building shootings about five, six years ago. I was, like, a few blocks from where it happened, dude. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Because I think you and I were, you were talking about that on the podcast. Because yeah. I, I can't remember how it came up, but you said you were just like... Yeah, you were in your office, you went to grab lunch. Was it you were grabbing lunch, or you didn't decide to grab lunch and came back, and that's when you got the news that everything's on lockdown? Uh, I wanted to get I wanted to grab lunch because I forgot it that day. Yeah. And then I look at my Outlook before I go, just to make sure that there's nothing that I need to do. Uh, and there's just an email that's like, yeah, don't go outside. Oh. And then a new email, get away from the window. Oh. It's like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's like, I was honestly expecting a hide in the stairwell one next. Yeah, because you did know what was really going on. Yeah, well, it's like, there were reports of snipers, and at that point, it was just like, oh, shit. Yeah, like, the stuff being reported on the ground in Ottawa was nuts. And you know what's crazy is that those kinds of shootings, given that we that is the capital of Canada, and that's where all the government of this country is... I'm amazed that more shootings like that have not happened in Ottawa because a lot of those kind of shootings are more in Toronto because that's where very finan- where the financial hub of this country is, where Ottawa is more the government side. I well, mean. I think the big thing about Toronto is it's a much larger city with gang presence. Ottawa is small. Ottawa is only a million people, right? So you don't have the gang press. You don't have the gang presence. You don't have the pressure cooker scenario. And like the other thing is, is that the government around the security around the government is 
pretty tight, even if it doesn't look it. Yeah, fair enough. So there isn't as much opportunity for it. Like, I think the thing about uh, that shooting in particular was it was so brazen. Like, the guy just walks on to, like, you've, you've been to Ottawa. You know uh, where the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is, right? Yep. Dude, walk. so there's usually, during the day, there's a, a soldier just placed on guard. And dude just walks up and shoots and then drives up to Parliament. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I don't think I did, did I see those soldiers? I don't. Can't remember if I did or not. It's usually just one guy standing right in front of the monument. Hmm. I'm not sure if they've stopped doing that because of the shooting. Maybe. I don't know. I, I was thinking maybe because they had the NHL 100 outdoor game there. And that's where the rink was. I, I don't know. But off the top of my head, I can't remember off the top of my head if they even had the guard there. Yeah, but it's... I think the reason it doesn't happen as much as Ottawa's fewer people... It's scary in Ottawa's... Like, I don't... You don't really feel like there's any part of Ottawa that's particularly bad downtown. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Time out. Are you... Uh-huh. What about the McDonald's at Rideau? It's sketchy. I don't think I'd get shot or stabbed there. Yet. Yet. But it's like, it's not like going through some parts of Toronto or some America, or like fucking Los Angeles where it's like, oh, I my life isn't safe in this part of town. Yeah, but that's like even in big cities like Vancouver, right? There's certain places like Vancouver where, you know, it's not safe. Yeah, well, I know Skid Row is just like, our Uber went through, I think, part of Skid Row in LA and it was just like, oh. We could die. Yeah. Well, even if you go into, like, Englewood and all that places where the Great Western Forum and Hollywood Park and the airport is, like, it's still pretty sketchy over there. Because South Central is really close to that, too. Yeah, yeah, Well, uh, yeah, like, LA's fucking weird. And then even Boston, like, I was like, it's getting dark. I should, I don't know this city. I should get home. Or sorry, I should get back to the hotel. Yeah, especially if you go into, like, Southie and places like that. And I didn't know the city well enough to know which parts were good and which parts were bad. So I was just like, I just won't go. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I mean, imagine for big cities like that, like, and obviously you've done a lot of traveling for work. I imagine if you were to stay more downtown, you would be more or less fine, correct? Yeah. Like, well, the U.S., it's funny because like there's parts that are gentrified and then there's, there's a reason there's the phrase, the other side of the tracks, because cities change on a dime. Like, uh, LA's fucking, like, LA's crazy. Like, you have downtown LA, like, you're on, Fig you're on Figueroa, which is all these really nice towers, banks, by, uh, where the fucking Lakers play. And then you go two blocks and it's Skid Row. It's kind of like Vancouver, where you have, like, Rogers Arena, BC Plays, very nice places of downtown, and then you got East Hastings. Yeah, it's exactly that. And, like, I know, uh, one of Chelsea's, uh, co-worker co-researchers in her lab at the USC, she was, I think she was supposed, I'm not sure if she was supposed to go or all, but it was canceled by COVID or is already gone. She was supposed to go to a conference in uh, Baltimore. Oh, she already, she did go end up going to Baltimore and uh, Chelsea and I were looking at the map. It's like, okay, so Camden Yards is fine. Across the train tracks from there is uh, where that guy got shot and it started to dash a riot that got on national television. So it really is just like, oh, the area around John Hopkins is fine, but don't go too far. 
Yeah, I mean, in fairness, there's a reason why the show The Wire was based in Baltimore, given how yeah. violent and sketchy it can be. Yeah, and like Cincinnati's like that. Apparently, Washington, Washington D.C. is like that. Chicago. Chicago is 100% like that. Like, uh, it was funny. I was like, when I was uh, at a conference with some people from University of Chicago, they're like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, did you go to central Chicago? No. <laughs> because they mostly stayed around University Park, right? Right. So they didn't go into, like, the parts where people call Chirac. Okay, so so why do they call it Chirac, Tim? Uh, it is incredibly violent. I think if one of the most violent places in the U.S. Okay. So it's... From what it's I understand, about as dangerous as going to Iraq. Mm, I was going to say, from what I understand, the area around the United Center is actually kind of bad, too. Yeah. I'm surprised it hasn't been gentrified, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. Because, yeah, like, a lot of the areas around the arenas themselves get gentrified. Like, I know, uh, like, the area around LA Live, which is where the Staples Center, is at, Staples Center and the LA Convention Center are. Gleaming Towers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, actually, it's really funny, Calgary. They tried to gentrify the area around the Saddledome and Stampede area. Yeah. And then there's, they built the buildings, and then a lot of people, and I think they probably sold them for a decent amount, but uh, the reality of this situation is uh, one of the few homeless shelters in Calgary that takes people no matter what is across the street. Hmm. I did not know that, Tim. Yeah, so... Uh, it's because when we got off the train station, we went right into the Stampede Park. We didn't go, we didn't cross the tracks. I've heard the Alpha House is actually decently well maintained, but if I'm paying $2,000 a month to rent a penthouse, I don't want to be across the street from the Alpha House when I come into the house with groceries. Yeah, that is true. Especially when, like you're saying, right? When you're paying two Gs a month. Yeah. But anyway, I think we have some better news to talk about. Yeah, actually, before we go any further, Tim, I do want to make a quick announcement. I don't know, I think you probably saw this on Twitter because I know I, let, I mentioned this to you. Former Ottawa Senators PA announcer, Stuntman Stu's cancer is in remission. That's fantastic. It is. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's one of those things where... You know, you saw the support for Stu when he came out on Twitter about it. Like, we dedicated the episode about it. Jay and Dan did the exact thing, because Dan... I might be wrong, but I think Dan and Stu went to uh, Algonquin College together in Ottawa. So I think cool. that... So they how they knew each other. And actually, it's funny. When, when I saw Jay and Dan do their podcast live in Victoria, Dan brought some of his old CKDJ, which is the radio station for Elkhorn College, he brought some of those tapes in and he's talking about uh, this one DJ. He goes, yeah, DJ Stu or whatever. And he mentioned live, that was Stu Schwartz. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, freaking, that's awesome. I know Stuntman Stu. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, we have uh, another piece of good news that just happened today. Uh, Anthony LeBlanc is the Ottawa Senator's new, new head of business operations. Yeah, so he is replacing the recently departed Jim Little. Yeah. And that's actually really cool because this is a guy who brings a lot of sports experience with him. And he also brings a lot of business experience. Excuse me, because 
from what I understand and what I was reading about him is that before he worked for the Coyotes as their president of operations, where he was doing for the team, he was also working for BlackBerry. Yes. Well, and... well, obviously BlackBerry's not around anymore, and you know Jim Balsall he pissed off a lot of owners, but that's not here there anywhere. But no, it's great to see that Ottawa did take their time, and I was actually really surprised they made this announcement, given that excuse me, Jesus that they were looking for a president of hockey operations. They've been looking for a long time and nothing's come about this. And obviously with the coronavirus and the pandemic we're in, there's been a lot of things where this is being delayed. That's being delayed. This being postponed. I'm really surprised that this piece of news came out. Cause it was well, like, Oh, one, cool. One of the big things here is that it's, if the Ottawa senders can pull people in and pull quality people in during weird times, maybe it's a sign that, they're, they might be able to pull in the things they really need in uh, when things get more normal, and it might actually remove some of the stigma about working with Ottawa in the hockey world. That is true. And also, with these kind of moves and these kind of hires that bring stability to the team, and with the team getting better on the ice, then we'll probably see the fan base return as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... It's kind of cool that one of the guys who was a big part part of bringing the schooners to Halifax is going to be working here with the Senators. Oh, that guy was involved with the yep. Atlanta schooners? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's freaking awesome. Actually, I do want to mention this one guy on Twitter because I have actually a pretty good laugh about this one. Uh, it comes from Broschensky on Twitter. He said, just figure out a way to save the sense. Number one, get paid to take barrels of oil Number two, store them in the CTC during quarantine and in the 300s during the regular season. Number three, sell later for more. Number four, use it to buy a downtown arena. <laughs> and I just sent a gift that says, fuck it, I'm in, let's do it. Man, oil being negative priced is, like, it's such a weird place to be, hey? It was because at, what was it at, like, 69 cents a barrel this morning? Negative 34. Oh my good God. It got to negative like the contract got to negative 40 because one of the things that separates commodities from stocks is you got to put them somewhere. And because no one's driving or flying, no one, people are using a lot less oil. That We're is out true. of places to put it in North America. It's true. Well, even here, I mean, gas has gotten down so much that the gas station on the corner here by my place is I think it 91 cents or something? We're at 60. That's ridiculous. And I understand that during this pandemic, nobody's driving, but still, you see those gas prices, you're just like, man, like, why couldn't this be like this all the time? Well, just think of how screwed up the world is because of the pandemic. Now imagine that the Saudi, an agreement that used to exist between the Saudis and the Russians broke down, and they're pumping. So, like, the Brent contract, so Brent is, uh, for Europe and Asia, delivery mostly. Right. They're down to 20 bucks a barrel. And where was so that it's like before? North, was that pretty... North America, there's no place to, there's no place to store it anymore. Right. If it, if the Saudis and Russians keep going at it, they could be, like, it could be like that back in Europe and Asia as well. Man, that's insane, and... But you and know, then, well, here's the thing. Even the with WTI the, headline number, and it's worse for Alberta. What's it in Alberta right now? Uh, 
uh, I don't think the WCS contract's even liquid right now. Like, it's going to be a, impossible to trade because the thing is, with Alberta, is we already trade at a massive discount to American Oil because yeah. there's no the pipelines are full, the train lines are full, there's nowhere for it to go. Like, we don't even have access, like, we don't really have much more access to the ocean, so without the pipelines, we're royally fucked. And no amount of economic diversification was going to stop that from happening. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's I true. expect things, even once this lock, the lockdown comes off in Calgary, things are going to be bad. Yeah, I imagine bad at first, but... I oh, th- just bad. Really? So it's obvious, so it's not even going to get better after that? Like, it'll just be royally, oh, we're fucked. Well, even if we could go outside, what are people going to do if even the remaining energy firms are laying off a ton of staff because oil prices are so low, it's not even worth pulling it out of the ground. It's not worth trading it. It's not worth insuring it. Like, that's going to be a lot of layoffs today. Especially if the Saudis and Russians keep going at it, and if uh, shale plays in the U.S., keep aggressively pumping. Like, it could be really bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a scary world once this thing's all over, Tim. Yeah, I just realized... (laughs) Chelsea, I thought you guys were doing a hockey podcast. (laughs) Well, we are still doing a hockey podcast, but given we haven't really talked in the last couple of of weeks, we figured to get, you know, a lot of good talking points out of the way first for the first half of the episode. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully uh, our listeners, and I do believe we have some in the Calgary area, are keeping their sticks on the ice. That's true, man. So, Tim, we're going to take a really quick break here in the Third Line Plug Sensecast, and we will return finally to talk about the episode that we're actually doing today, because we haven't even mentioned it at all. Today's episode, we're talking about the top five actual good things about the 2019-2020 Ottawa Senators. Coming right back. Hey, this is Brandon Mackey, staff writer for Silver7Sends.com and host of Internal Budget Podcast. You're listening to the Third Line Plug Sendscast. Okay, we are back. Now, it's time to talk about the top five actual good things from the 2019-2020 Ottawa Senators. Now, of course, the 2019-2020 season hasn't officially ended because the season's on hold. But we figured, let's be honest... This season's not coming back for a while. And even if it does come back, it'll probably just go right to the playoffs. And there's... So, Ottawa Senators hockey is probably done. Yeah. And that's fine with us, because we hold two of the top three draft lottery picks right now. Yeah, yeah. So, Tim, you and I were talking about this off-air, and I feel the best way to go about it is... I'm going to let you go first and let you explain your top five actual good things about this year's Ottawa Senators. Now, I'm not probably not going this into any orders in top to bottom, but I'm going to be going chronologically. And I think, for me, the first good thing about the Ottawa Senators season is the arrival of DJ Smith and the buy-in that we saw from the team. Because last year, there was a lot of question marks hanging over uh, Guy Boucher's head, and eventually the axe came down. And you could kind of tell that the team was listless. That really wasn't the case, case under DJ Smith. You could tell that everyone kind of bought into a hard work system. And I felt for the most part, he treated players pretty fairly. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the one thing that I noticed about DJ Smith was that he held the players accountable. And that was the one thing I... I'll be perfectly honest. I don't really feel Guy Boucher did that. I feel that Guy Boucher gave a lot of players a lot of leeway when it came to their questionable play. Like, you look at the plays of Bobby Ryan and a few other players we had on the team... And it just didn't feel like their accountability was there. And that's the one thing with DJ Smith that I noticed is that, and you saw it with the benchings of Miguel Bacher and you saw it with Bobby Ryan, is that he held players accountable. Yeah, and I think that that breeds a pretty good culture in the room. And it's interesting because Morgan Riley, when DJ Smith left Toronto, said that he was kind of a very good development coach and held players accountable. And that's definitely true here. And I guess this is true of every coach where... They have their favorites, and sometimes they're not the best players. And I think that might be the case with Nikita Zaitsev. True, but you know what the thing is, and Brandon Mackey on our last episode made a really good point. He says that he didn't feel like Nikita Zaitsev was as terrible as some people made him out to be. He wasn't amazing by any means. But I do feel that, I do agree that DJ Smith favored him over a Dylan Tomello. And while Zaitsev didn't play necessarily bad with Shabbat, you saw that Shabbat's play did kind of suffer playing with Nikita Zaitsev. Oh, yeah. But uh, the nice thing was is I think that... uh, Again, it's hard because another thing that I wasn't happy with DJ Smith, but I felt it got better as the season went on was just weird ice time. Like, he'd often have players playing less than seven minutes sometimes players playing as low as five yeah and then you have shabbat who is playing like what 33 34 minutes a night yeah like it was obscene but i found that even as the season started to go on and he started to know kind of who who he could trust for what Mm -hmm. i felt like uh the ice time issue even started to sort itself out a bit although one thing i i don't think i could really blame him on the defense as much because a lot of the call-ups that Ottawa had weren't the strongest, although I found that once Christian Wallanen came back into the fold, he had more to work with. True, but even the the waiver pickup of Mike Riley, I think, actually paid off pretty well for Ottawa. And I know he was a guy that you weren't necessarily high on last season, and I always made the argument and the defenses for him in certain games because I thought, yeah, he's not great, but you know, you saw him moving the puck and you saw that he wasn't afraid to make some moves out on the ice. Whereas a young defenseman coming into the league and coming into this team would be maybe a little more hesitant to make those kinds of moves, or they would be a little more cautious with the puck. And I didn't necessarily see that with Mike Riley. Mm -hmm. I guess the other heart, like the other thing that I definitely think mitigates the ice type issue on the defense was holy shit. Ottawa's left side got, sorry, right side got decimated this season. Yep. No, like especially... Tom Perry, Cody Gullibuff? Oh, no. Well, even look at like, look at our right side now without DeMello. Like, who do we have? We have Zaitsev. Ainsy. What the fuck? No. What uh, the fuck? Well, first of all, he's a, he's a left shot defenseman. So oh, yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, so it's Zaitsev, Lassie Thompson. Well, well we had Bernard Docker, too, but he's going back to university next season. So... Really, I mean, who do we have? Well, we have Zub. We have that Russian kid that we we got. Did we actually pick him up, or is that still just in rumors? I thought we had. I thought we had. I didn't hear anything about a signing, but I thought we had. 
we had won that kid and we were just waiting on him to be signed. Okay, I'm not sure. Yeah, apparently, but yeah, apparently he's just, pretty good too, but... Yeah, like the left side is... Because I think Haynes, he's a left shot, but he plays right. Yeah, but I think the reason why he was playing right side is because uh, we were so weak on the right side yeah, that we needed enough. somebody there, right? Yeah. Although Christian will... I think Christian Willanning can also play either side. That's true, and... I mean, if he if you have to put him on there, you could probably say Max Lejoie as well, but I think Lejoie is a better suited for the, the left side more than the right. Yeah, and I think Lejoie also needs a bit more cooking. That is true. Which is fine. He's a young guy. Yeah, I mean, we said the same about Eric Branstrom too last season, yeah. right? Because Branstrom, since he's coming to the NHL, has been a guy who, to put it best, he's been okay. He's not been amazing. He hasn't been excellent. He's been okay. He's yeah. had some really good games. He's had some really nice moments. But you can tell he's really not ready. Yeah, and the nice thing is is there's he's got time to cook. Yeah, because we have depth on the left side. Shabbat's already on this team. If you want to keep uh, Borvieski, you can use him for the left shot. You have Wallanen. You have Lejoise. You have people on the left side that you can use and let Branstrom develop a little bit more if that's the case. Exactly. Although, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Sens are looking at Eric Branstrom to be a full-time player next season, though. Yeah, and the hard thing with Branstrom is he looks really good in the AHL. Like, I think it's just get a bit older get a, and get a bit more AHL experience, and I think we'll see a very strong defenseman in Eric Branstrom. That's true, but the AHL, and no knock against the AHL, is that when you watch these players in the American Hockey League... And yes, they go down there and they dominate, but when they come up, it's a totally different game. The players are so much bigger and so much more supremely more talented. Like, oh, yeah. you go to the American Hockey League and you're going up against whatever guy playing center in Rockford or Milwaukee or whatever, and then you're going up and playing against Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby or Alex Ovechkin. You're going up against those guys. And, like, that's kind of a talent shock, right? Yeah, and it depends on the personality. Some people can come into the NHL and not be rattled or affected by that. It's rare, but you know what? Those people exist. But I think it's uh, it's going to be a learning curve for Branstrom, and he definitely has the toolkit. And watching the, watching the way he played in the AHL and tries to play in the NHL, I think the brain's there. It's yeah. just... Getting, putting all the pieces together. Yeah. Like, I think the pieces are there. It's just, it'll take some time for him to put them together. Yeah, and he's a fantastic skater, too, which that's one of the key things to his game as well. Yeah, like, he's a good skater and he's smart. And that's that's two essential components for an elite defenseman. Moving on to the second good thing that I think the Ottawa Senators did this year is Pierre Dorian was very active. And I think this year he got the better end of pretty much every transaction he made. I would agree with that. I would agree because it's funny. And Trevor Shackles put out a tweet, uh, I can't remember, five, six months ago. And he went through every acquisition and transaction Pierre Dorian has made. And really, if you really want to look at all of them together, he was batting about 500. That's not bad, but I think... In my personal opinion, I don't think the bad trades 
outweigh the good. Because no. obviously the bad trades at the time, trading Jonathan Dolan for Alex Burrows. Okay, very, very suspect. But then again, Dolan didn't develop with the Canucks. So you can kind of make the argument of, well, okay, but Dolan didn't develop and Burroughs wasn't amazing for us. But you also look at the number of trades over the last couple of years, like the Mark Stone trade. Who did we get out of that? Well, we got Eric Brandstrom out of that. And a, and a second. And a second. You look at Ryan Dezingle and Matthew Shane. Who did we get out of that? We got Vitaly Abramov, Anthony Duclair, draft picks. We got really good things out of that. And now you come to Eric Carlson. Who did we get out of that? Tierney, DeMello, Josh Norris, and Lafonier, potentially. Yeah, either way, it's a lottery pick. Yeah, and obviously San Jose couldn't have seen that. No. When they were trading for Eric Carlson two years ago. Well, the other thing is, it's like, cutting it off at, cutting the past off at July 1st, 2019 and going forward, There, I don't think there's anything really bad. Like, the first trade of this season, CeCe Harper, Luchuk, and a third out for Connor Brown, Nikita Zaitsev, and Michael Carson. Yeah, and given that Connor Brown was the leading scorer of the Senators this season. And he's going to be a good depth piece when the Senators are finally competitive. That's a good... I think we got the better end of that trade. Considering that Cody Cece's garbage, Ben Harper sucks. And sure, we had to take on Nikita Zaitsev's contract, but I'm not sure that's the worst thing in the world. No, and you can even look at the two trades between the Sens and the Leafs over the last five years. Ottawa's got the better of both trades. Because when we traded McCulloch, Cowan, Lindbergh, and whoever to Toronto for Dion Phaneuf, Dion Phaneuf actually played really decently for us. Yeah, well, Phaneuf was actually better than serviceable during the 2017 Cup run. And that's all you can really ask. But then just going down the list of the other trades, you have Zach Smith for Artem Isimov. I think that played out well for the Sens. Callahan for Condon. Sorry, Callahan in a fifth for Condon in a sixth. Cleared out the goalie mess and got the Senators a cap dump. Sorry, they got them to the floor. Ebert in a fourth for Nemestikov. And then flipping Nemestikov to get the fourth back. Yeah, absolutely solid. But you also yeah. look at the signings he made, like you look at the Tyler Ennis signing, for example. That was actually a pretty decent signing for us. And Ennis was a guy that I was disappointed to see him go, but I knew he wasn't going to stay with the team past this year. No. And no one was really expecting that. DeMello for a third. I get it. Mike Riley's an interesting one. That's the only one I... One of the things that once I do feel that we missed on because we could have had Mike Riley for free. The problem was is we just didn't have contract space. Max Veronenu to the Leafs. If he, he wasn't finding time on the AHL team, so chances are he wasn't going to develop here, so I'm fine taking the sixth. Aaron Luchuk just ended up going to, for Michael Pekka. And the Pajot trade was brilliant. Yeah, because, and you go back to our trade deadline episode, that was the one thing that I even commented on is when you saw to Foley and you see these guys who will be the first to admit talent wise to Foley is talented and much more, much more talented than Pajot straight talent, but he got a second 
The Kings got a second for him. And then you look what Ottawa was getting, and you and I were saying to each other, you're thinking, God, I don't know if we were going to get a first for Pajot. And then you saw a first, a second, and a third. Well, we're not seeing that third, let's be real. No, but when you saw that trade, how hard did your jaw drop? Especially when you saw Toffoli and these guys were only getting seconds. And you're thinking, Did I not introduce that trade with the Ikea ad? Start yeah. the car! Yes, absolutely. Like, you take that trade and run every fucking day of the week. Like, I love Jean-Gabriel Pajot, but holy... Yeah, and then you see him go to the Islanders and unfortunately not light it up for the Islanders. Because he had, like, yeah. two, two goals or something. It's, I don't know how many games he played for them. Yeah, like, he, I don't think he won a game while on the Islanders. No, like the, no the Islanders rough. were in a tailspin when they got him. Yeah, and he didn't help, sadly. No, it was disappointing, but... You know what you think about we go into this draft with two lottery picks and a third for the from the Islanders? It's fantastic. Yeah, no, Pierre Dorian, he had a plan, he stuck to it, and it worked it worked out well. Uh, the next point three I wanna say is uh, the emergence of Marcus Hogberg. Like, sure, the headline numbers, not great. Point nine oh four, three point one two goals against average. For a twenty five year old on the Ottawa Senators. He played, I think there's only one or two games where he really wasn't in it, but most games Marcus Hogberg was there to play, and he looked the part of, if not an NHL, like a future NHL starter, a top flight backup. I absolutely agree with that. And the thing about Marcus Hogberg is that coming into this season, there was a lot of questions with him from the fans going, okay, is he really going to take the next step to make it to the NHL? And then you saw the depth chart in the NHL because you had Craig Anderson, you had Anders Nelson who came out of nowhere for the Sens, you had uh, Gustafsson in the minors, Joey Decord, so you had all the, and uh, Mad Sogard. Sogard. So you had these goalies, and you're thinking, okay, where does Hogberg fit in all this? And, and it was especially challenging with Condon still around. Yeah, and then and they trade Condon, so there's a, the logjam is cleared, like you were saying. But I don't think any of us saw Hogberg really elevating his game to make the NHL. No, and I think that's the hard thing with goalies, and especially young goalies. You have no idea what they're going to do. That's true. I mean, there's obviously the exceptions like a Martin Brodeur or a Carey Price, but they're, they're such an anomaly. Yeah, or even a Chris Dreiger. <laughs> like, what, where the hell did his miracle season come from? Or same with... Uh, Elvis Merzlekens in uh, Columbus. It's whatever catches bottle and wh whatever you can catch in a bottle, and if you can run with it, great. And uh, but the thing with Marcus Hogberg is you watch him, and it's interesting because a lot of the casters that like a lot of sports casters that are former goalies, like Marty Biron or uh, Jamie McLennan, they'll note that he's, he seems poised. Yeah, and that was he the has, one. Well, that's the one thing I noticed about Noodles doing the Sens broadcasts is that goalies, well, uh, he's obviously an ex-NHLer and a former goaltender, but he always looks more at the goalies, and he can go into more depth about the goalie because he was a former goaltender, as opposed to Ray Ferraro, who can go into more deep detail and more depth about forwards, because mm -hmm. that's what he was. And they generally had good things to say about Hogberg as well, so 
I am. I look forward to seeing Hogberg develop more. True. And actually, uh, one goalie you didn't mention, we're talking about Miracle Seasons. What about Andrew Hammond in 2015? Yeah. Although I think uh, it was interesting because I, watching Hogberg, it seems different. Like, I feel like his style of goaltending is more consistent. That's true. He's kind of like, because he is a bigger guy, when I watch him, to me, he seems like what I think a lot of fans were expecting of Robin Leonard. Because he, Robin Leonard, big fucking dude in the goal, and he covered a lot of space, much like Marcus Hogberg, but he was really inconsistent, and obviously he had a wicked temper to him. And emotion's good. Emotion's good at times, because you can feed off that, but when it starts affecting your game, that's when it gets called into question. Yeah. Well, the big thing about, like, I think it also took maturing and healing for Leonard. I think there's a, a bright future for Hogberg, and I think what's really interesting is uh, the questions that were swirling around Hogberg are now on to Gustafsson. That's true. I mean, if, if Goose can develop, and I, I if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I see him as the starter with Belleville next season. And because you see Nilsson and Hogberg being the one-two in Ottawa next year, maybe next season, 2021, is the year where Gustafsson now really comes into his own, and now he's either pushing Hogberg or Nilsson for their job. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Ottawa net evolves. Moving into, am I on point four? I think point four is uh, the Sens were actually fun to watch this year. I totally agree. And this is one of the things that you and I commented throughout season three was that there was just a different feeling with the Sens team. And it wasn't just from a culture change, but it was sitting down and watching these games night after night after night. And they weren't a chore to watch. Yeah, because you could tell by the end of season two that we were just like, oh Lord, what's happening now? Because, like, there was nothing to look forward to. There's no picks, so these games are meaningless. The, the team's not in it. The coaching carousel isn't helping. And how many awful things are happening off the ice. This year, it's the games are fun. The team is, I think, it is better than last year's team. Yeah, and that's interesting because when you look at last year's team, when we still had Matt Duchesne and Ryan Dezingle and Mark Stone and the star players, and yet a year later, these guys are gone, and yet the team is better. But I think a lot of that has to do with guys like Brady DeChuck really stepping up his game, Thomas Shabbat being more the vocal point and the centerpiece of the Senators, but you also saw it with a lot of the young guys, like Anthony Duclair and Pajot, and um, Hogberg was also really good. So you have these kind of guys around the Shabbats and the DeChucks, and now it's not about the one or two players that drive this team. It's the one or two players, yeah, they drive the team, but they have a surrounding team where they buy into it. Yeah, and I think one of the big things is uh, this team is, one of the big things is I think just the way they play defense is a bit more structured, and it's, I think every, like, you're getting the forwards are more into it too, and the Ottawa Senators, like, the shots they're giving up this year don't seem quite as god-awful as they were giving up last year. No, but one thing I also noted this year, and I know you probably mentioned it or noticed it as well, is their breakout plays were a lot better. Because last yeah. season, 
the Sens couldn't break out to save their life. Yeah. And you could tell, you could tell because they were getting hemmed in. Shots were just coming from everywhere. And they were good shots, too. While the Senators could barely get into the zone. This year, it seems like the Sens, they could break out competently. Sure, they were still getting lit up close to the net, but it was nowhere near as bad as last year. And... Uh, they could actually get shots from decent places. They still are. They're still having troubles getting into the slot, but uh, they can get right, right close to the net or fire from some of the nice hash marks. Sorry, not the hash marks. Sorry, but from the dot. So they're getting some opportunities here, and I think part of that's coaching, part of that's buy-in, and maybe it's just more fun to be an Ottawa Senator this year. I would think so because coming into this year. This was definitely the tank year. A lot of fans were already expecting that and anticipating that. And so you had that excitement around that, right? You're like, okay, if we finish dead last, because a lot of people were picked us to be dead last, and actually we did better than I think than a lot of people thought. To be fair. In fairness. In fairness. The Detroit Red Wings were some sort of fucking awful. I know, but you got to think about this. Coming into this season... A lot of people probably were thinking we were going to be what the Red Wings are this year. That we were going to be, there was going to be like the good teams, Medpack, Terrible, and then us. We did better than that. A lot of people did not see that coming. Because you look at our first half, like, we did better. We You go look at the record in the first 41 games. Yeah, we had a losing record, but... How many people expected that? They were probably thinking single number wins after 41 games. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, the wheels came off the bus a bit in the second half when the good teams actually hit their stride, but the auto, there weren't a lot of games where the Senators just got absolutely blown out. No, we had games where, you know, Jack Eichel goals were scored by Jack Eichel with four, but, you know... Overall, yeah, we didn't have a lot of games where we got completely blown out of the water. There were some, like the night in Minnesota, the afternoon in Minnesota, but even in the late game and against good teams, like Ottawa was able to hang with it a bit. Yeah, like a four-three overtime win, four-three overtime win against the Stars. There were some games in there where like Ottawa was still hanging tight, but yeah, like getting blown the fuck out by the Capitals, getting blown out by, well, hanging tight with Toronto. And stuff like that. So it's like going over to overtime with a desperate Blue Jackets team. The Vancouver, the 5-2 Canucks game should have should have been closer than it was. Like, there were a lot of games like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So, Tim, what do you have for number five on the top five actual good things about this year's Ottawa Senators team? It was a lot more fun to be a Senators fan this year. Because the off-ice was much, much better. That's true, because we went through a long stretch where we had no bad news, and then you have, you know, the Jim Little stuff came out. But even that, like, really, the the off-ice news was so minimal. Well, there was, here's the, like, even, what's interesting about the Jim Little thing is, the Ottawa Senators, I think, came out looking better than the NHL messaging. Because, like, the NHL tried to downplay as it wasn't a big thing, while the Ottawa Senators are like, this thing happened that was screwed up. So, like, I think the Ottawa Senators even handled it a bit better than the NHL as a whole did. 
And Melnick, the only thing that really came out about him was was about to check the casino and not paying the airfare. Like, that is so minimal compared to Melnick in years past. And then on top of that, we get a lot of feel-good news, like uh, Borocop. Yeah, the Borocop one was good. And then, of course, we had Craig Medaglia's team outside of the Borocop stuff, right? You had with you know, road tripping and all roads lead home and all these fun videos that they're doing. And the players seem very into it. Yeah. So it was like, and then on top of that, like Bobby Ryan, Bobby Ryan coming out of rehab and stuff like that. It's just, there was a lot to like about this season. Yeah. And then Scott Sabrin came back from his injury. Yeah. And even the Scott Sabrin story, if, if like, don't get me wrong, not a great player, but it was, a cool story to see a hometown guy make it out of PTO. Yeah, and a lot of that, I think a lot of people could argue, well, of course he was given a PTO by the Sens, given DJ Smith had coached him at every level except for at the pros. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, there's might be a bit of nepotism there, but it's like, it's a cool, it's a fun home, it's a fun hometown story. And I think the Ottawa Senators had a lot of that this year. Yep, and we also can't forget the retirement uh, or the number retirement of Chris Phillips. Yeah. And that, that went fantastically. Yeah. I'm still disappointed that I missed that though on uh, the night that happened. I think that the senators, despite where they ended on the standings, I think they had almost a perfect year. Like the young players are getting better. It's fun to watch the senators on and off the ice. Yep. And the future looks extremely bright coming into the 2020 draft in the offseason, given, like you said, you have two lottery picks. And it just seems like we're officially out of the darkness of the rebuild. And this is where all we're seeing now is light. Yeah. And the other thing is, is with, uh, other, like with the salary cap could be sitting flat for a few years, the Senators are one of the few teams in a good place to take advantage of that. So with that, that's my five good things that happened to the Ottawa Senators. And what do you have, Dick? Well, I have to say, a lot of the points that you've made, I do have them in my top five as well. Now, of course, I'm not going to go chronologically, but I am going to go, in my personal opinion, from importance. And start off at number five, and I have the change in team culture. Now, of course, the first seeds of the culture change were planted when the Senators drafted Brady Tachak, and the Sens also hired DJ Smith. Now, I know the Sens Twitter panned the hiring of DJ Smith as head coach with many people online, and it's funny looking back on that because a lot of people wanted Patrick Waugh or Jacques Martin to be hired. And I th- Wait, people wanted sh- people actually wanted Patrick Waugh? Yes, there were people online that wow. wanted Patrick. I know. Think about that. Think of what a shit show we would have been this year if Patrick Waugh was our head coach. You know, I'm... I have a feeling Patrick Waugh is blacklisted after what he did in uh, Colorado. Fair enough. But the one thing, and we've talked about it, like DJ Smith brought accountability to the Senators, as seen with the benching of players like Bobby Ryan, Miguel Biker. And the one thing that I do have got a comment, even though, and we were no different, we mocked Pierre Dorian's were a team comment from two years ago. I feel the Ottawa Senators have adopted that motto. And we saw it firsthand during their game versus Tampa Bay when Mark Borowiecki got hit from behind and Dylan DeMello dropped the gloves. And it wasn't just guys like Brady Tachuk sticking to first teammates. You saw it with DeMello. You saw it with 
other players on the Sens who, if something happened, one or two teammates were going after him. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a lot of teams where that doesn't happen. No, exactly. And it doesn't happen very often. You will have like the one or two players that will go after him, like a Ryan Reeves or or with us, like with Brady Tuchuk and Mark Verbieski. But you saw guys outside of that that were sticking up for each other. And that was really, really great to see last season. Yeah, well, there's players I was like, I didn't know you fought. <laughs> Getting into it. It's fantastic. So that's my number five. At number four, now this is one that I'm actually really surprised that you didn't put this on your list, Tim. The play, uh-huh. of, the play of Jean-Gabriel Pajot and Anthony DeClaire in November and December. It was good stuff, and we... It was fun to watch, but I felt just the general atmosphere of the team really bought into that. Yeah. Now, the one thing I got to comment is that when the Sens started the 1920 season, like I said, everybody had picked us to be dead last in the NHL, given that this was our tank year, and the Senators surprised many in the first half of their play. And a lot of that, I feel, you got to give that to Pajot and Duclair. Pajot in the month of November, he potted 11 goals including a hat-trick versus New Jersey. And, of course, his play was good enough to get multiple draft picks from the New York Islanders at the trade deadline, which I'm still shocked that we got that for. Well, the other thing is, is, and you have to put this into perspective, this year we had three hat-tricks. Last year we had none. That's true. I think that speaks a lot to just kind of how much fun it and how good of a year that the Senators having where they could even just have hat tricks. That's true. I mean, the fairness that we got three shutouts, uh, no, three hat tricks and no shutouts. Yeah. Actually, I don't think the Senators had a hat trick in 20, in 2017, 2018 either. I don't think, no, that wouldn't surprise me if it didn't, but Anthony and Claire in the month of December, to put it bluntly, the man was too legit to quit. Yeah. He also had 11 goals in December, including back-to-back two goals nights and the hat trick versus the Columbus Blue Jackets, which I actually went back and I rewatched that. That second goal, and I can't remember who he was linesman. I think it was Connor Brown or whoever. Brown went on the left side. Duclair came on the right side, and he was going backwards. And he just rifled it right past Corpusal or whoever the Blue Jackets had in goal. And I just thought, damn, that was nice. It really was. But the sad and thing about... That's the thing about Anthony declares The skills there, the, the skating's there. Dude just got snake bit. It's true. And, of course, Duclair couldn't sustain his production as he went on that 20-game goalless streak in the second half. But I can't really criticize him because, as we said a few weeks ago, you saw that even though he was snake bit, his game overall was decent. Yeah, like the fancy... He was on the right side of the puck most of the time. So he was skating. He was making smart plays. Dude was just getting robbed or choking the stick. It was just something that happens, right? Also, fun little fact. The, before Pajot's hat trick, the last senator to have a hat trick was also Pajot. That doesn't surprise me. Let me it was the four-goal performance. I was going to say, let me guess. Four-goal performance against the Rangers? Yup. Nothing about that surprises me, to be perfectly honest with you. Nothing at all. No. So at number three, I actually have the emergence of Marcus Hockberg. 
Now, coming into this season, Marcus Ogberg, as I've already mentioned, he was a player that many fans were beginning to think he would never take the next step to make the big club, and as a result, would be buried in the depth chart. Hogberg took full advantage when the team handed over the reins to him following the injuries to Anderson and Nilsson. Despite having a 5-8-8 record, he still recorded a 9-0-4 save percentage and had a huge hand in keeping Ottawa in a number of games. Yeah, and uh, I think we talked this to death a lot, but uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how Ottawa's crease evolves in the next year or so. Absolutely. And in hell, even after next season, if... Gustav, if Philip Gustafsson really takes that next step the, mar- the way Marcus Hogberg has, then possibly we might see either Hogberg or Nilsson out in Ottawa next year. Yeah. So at number two, I like the name for this because one of the documentaries I was watching a few weeks ago was called The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. This is called uh. The Resurrection of Bobby Ryan. Now, when we did our second half recap with Brandon Mackey a few weeks ago, I did mention that Ryan was a lightning rock for criticism during his tenure with the Senators. And in the opening month of this season, Ryan did look really shaky. And as a result, he was benched a number of times by DJ Smith. Now, of course, in November, he took a leave of absence to enter rehab. He returned in February and just looked like a completely different player on the ice. He looked more energetic, and it showed when he punted his hat trick in his first home game back versus Vancouver. Yeah, and I think one of the big moments of the Ottawa Senators season was that Bobby Ryan Hatrick, because you have a guy who is always kind of had a question mark around him, but has just been an awesome part of the community, but uh, has a notoriously rough life, is able to overcome some of the demons and just come and play a really awesome game. That's true, and that was the thing about Bobby Ryan is that I think the fans, it's very safe to say the fans really only judged him for his on-ice performance. He never judged him on his off-ice. We knew about the off-ice stuff. We knew about the trouble home life he had. We knew about some of the problems he had off the ice. But we never held that against him. We said that, hey, listen, you're human. You've got your flaws. So in that regard, we only judged him for his on-ice performance, where I think... Not a very great comparison, but for me, I look at a guy like Mike Hoffman, who you could judge him on the ice because he was very shaky and he was very streaky. But you also heard he wasn't exactly the best teammate off the ice. And you also, and it came out to be true with the Hoffman and Carlson situation, that he wasn't a great person. Bobby Ryan was not that. Bobby Ryan, from what a lot of people were saying, was a really great guy off the ice. He was great to the fans. He was great to his teammates. It's just a shame that his performance on the ice was not amazing. Yeah, and it's a shame because Bobby Ryan's definitely one of those players you love liking, and I hope the guy has a better year next year. I really do, because he definitely deserves it. Yeah, and it would be great to see a sober Bobby Ryan for a full season. Yeah, maybe he'll be able to raise hell like he did at the in those 2017 playoffs. Oh, man, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So, Tim, we've come to number one on my top five actual good things about the 2019-2020 Ottawa Senators. Now, I put this in asterisks. I said landing Lafreniere. The draft lottery hasn't happened yet. So, I am going to put Pierre Dorian putting us in a position to succeed. Because, make no mistake... 
it was very, very tough for us to see players like Pajot, Mark Stone, Ryan Dezingle, Eric Carlson departing the team over the last couple of years. But the silver lining to all of this is that those moves and where we were going made us a lottery team for Alexei Lafreniere. But also it made the outlook of the Senators' future extremely bright. Especially with the Pajot trade where you got those draft picks, the Mark Stone trade that brought Brandstrom, bringing in Duclair, Abramoff, Josh Norris, all these players that you've brought in. So now in the next couple of seasons, we're seeing a very young core. And not just guys that we brought in, but guys that we've drafted. You look at Drake Batherson. You look at Philip Shalatbeck. You look at Christian Willanen. You look at Shabbat. You look at Dechuk. You look at these players and you think, we're not going to be terrible for much longer. There's better days ahead of us right now. Yeah, and uh, you could tell that Pierre Dorian had a plan and he stuck to it. And I know I'm someone who likes to defend Pierre Dorian, but I legitimately think he's done a really good job here. And it's the last year of his work has been very good. And, like, yeah, we have three first-rounders, two of them lottery picks, for God's sakes. I know. How many people saw that happening? None. Exactly. None of us saw it. Like, we saw when we kept our 2020 draft pick. Think of it this way. And I was thinking about this today. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we had kept our draft pick last year and we gave the avalanche Alexa Lafonniere? Yeah. Well, that I think that's the thing is a lot of people looking at it, it's like, you got to give it to this year because next year's draft is so good. Yeah. Well, sorry, no, we took Brady Kachuk, so we had to give him to last year, but yeah. Yeah, in 2018, but we had to... Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, like, if we didn't have it this year, oh, wow. Yeah. Sense fans would have been apocalyptic. Yeah, and, I mean, but that's the thing, because there was no guarantee San Jose was going to bottom out like they had. There was no yeah. guarantee. Well, I don't think anyone saw just, like, Carlson basically dying. Well, I, I don't want to say we didn't fully see that, because you knew he wasn't 100% healthy out of the last couple of years. Well, the other thing is just a lot of the big guns for San Jose never showed up. Like, their top scorer was Timo Meyer. Decent player. Decent player, but Logan Couture had a down year. Vander Kane had a down year. Brent Burns. Brent Burns. Martin Mark. Jones. Yeah. It's just this. They, a lot of the players on that team just did not have a good year. And it's probably going to get worse given the salary cap crunching coming. God, San Jose is going to be a total shit show for the next several years. When a lot of people look at, like, a team that's had a lot of long-run success, they think the Detroit Red Wings. Yeah. San Jose's been there for almost as long. That's fair, but I think it's different with the Red Wings because the Red Wings have the Stanley Cups. San Jose does not have that. If San Jose had a Stanley Cup, you could maybe legitimately make that argument of... You know, the sustained success they've had, and Doug Wilson was at the helm for San Jose for a number of years, much like Cat Hall was in Detroit. But there's a difference. The Red Wings have four cups today. 
the Sharks went to one Stanley Cup Finals, and I think they won one game. I think. To be fair, for whatever reason, San Jose and goaltenders never got along. Yeah, but also their goal scorers never showed up too. Yeah, although I feel like Evgeny Nabokov let let them down many years in a row. But he also took him. They also took them to the playoffs a number of those years too. That's true. It's not his fault that by the time the playoffs got, he was cooked. True. Although in that 2009-2010, he also dropped Russia. So, like, it's the weird thing about Nabokov is he was fantastic, 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 and then he'd have one really important game where he just shit the bed. I feel bad for the guy because he was anti-clutch. He was a really good goalie, but kind of anti-clutch. Yeah, but you know what? For Nabokov is that, and you can say this about other goaltenders, is that I always feel you're only as good as the team in front of you. You can look at, in a perfect example, look at Roberto Luongo in Vancouver. Think of all the shit Canuck fans gave him for 2011. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're giving your goaltender who doesn't fucking score because he's a goaltender, you're giving him shit, but you're not giving Daniel and Henrik Sedin or Kessler or any of these guys who, who are not scoring in the finals. But yeah, oh, it must be Roberto's fault because he lets in eight goals a night. Not to be fair, the players that are not scoring. You could have all the goal support in the world, but if you give if you're trying to catch up to eight goals. True, but again, I, I think that's where I find that it does irk me when people throw the goalie under the bus because you're thinking, oh, okay, it's not Roberto Luongo's fault. The Canucks can't score. It wasn't Mika's Kippersoft's fault in Calgary. The Flames couldn't score. Although, to be fair, that was the ref's fault. You can blame the refs all you want, Tim. <laughs> At the end of the day, Calgary oh, and Vancouver and these teams could not score. Yeah, fair enough. Although, I still hold that the Cal- Calgary losing was some bullshit. But... I digress. No, that, that puck was kicked in. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> Just because you're living in Calgary and you know that you're going to get letter bombs from people in the city. I mean, maybe. Yeah. But, I don't know. If you let it, like, multiple eight-goal games, I think Luongo carries some of that. True, but... You know, you can't, I, I, yeah, you can't. I don't, you can't, I don't blame, I, I don't blame Luongo for the Canucks not showing up for game seven. No, but also you, you can kind of sort of also blame him for those like game three and game four losses in Boston, but the Canucks only scored like four goals in those two games. But then again, it's like, if, like, uh, let's see how quickly Boston was up four nothing in the third. Sorry, Boston was up to four nothing going into the third period. Yeah, it was a scoreless first period, and then it did. I guess for the weird thing about that game is also Aaron, Aaron Rome fucking murdering Nathan Horton. Yeah, but then you had the Bruins who murdered Mason Raymond as well. Yeah. God, I remember Mason Raymond. That guy, Mason Raymond, was one of those guys that he just couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with his shot. 
I remember him like tried to have a career resurgence in Toronto, and it actually kind of worked out because he finally got pucks on net. Yeah, Raymond was one of those guys. I remember one game in Vancouver. I can't remember who they were playing. He came down the wing. He took a slap shot. He missed the net by seven feet. <laughs> How do you like? He he took a shot at the net instead of directing the net. It went into the corner. I just watched that and I was like, "What?" Like he had nobody anywhere near him, and he missed. The one thing to Mason Raymond's credit, though, is he was really good at getting the puck and keeping the puck and moving the puck. The only thing is, the poor guy just had. He kind of reminds me of a slightly more, like a more skilled Eric Condra. Ooh, I was gonna say uh, Tyler Ennis, but no, that's a good one. Yeah, so it's like that Vancouver Boston series was. It was a weird one. But there was a lot of game. Like, the one thing is I don't blame Loongo for Game 7. No. The Canucks just didn't show up. That's true. Actually, you know what's funny and fast-forwarding ahead to our off-season, later off-season episodes? When we do our 2021 Hockey Hall of Fame wish list episode, Daniel and Henrik Sedin are eligible for that draft class. Oh, shit. Because they retired in 2018. They're no. first-year eligible right there. Alfie's getting snubbed again, isn't he? Yeah, because that 2021 draft class, I can already tell who's going in. Yager's going in. Yep. Daniel and Henrik are going in. And Marion Hose is going in. Do you think there's any wiener one that could get in? Um, Debatable. I mean, you you could maybe say Curtis Joseph. You could maybe say Mark Recchi. He's not in there? No. Crazy. Uh, Pierre, you know, he's also not Pierre Turgeon. Huh. Yeah. Pierre Turgeon's not in it. Tom Barrasso's not in it. Wait. Is Mark Recky not Hall of Famer? I don't think so. The Hockey TV says he's in the Hall of Fame. Oh, is he in? Sorry, no. Hockey Reference has him listed as a uh, Hall of Famer. Oh. Hall okay. of Fame, three-time winner, three-time cup winner. Oh, okay. One-time right, All-Star. Right, right. Okay. Sorry, I was looking at an article last night. It must have been an older article then because... He was on it, and of course, Korea and Lindros and yeah. whatever. Wreck, he came in in 2017. Oh, did he? Okay. okay. Yeah, he was with Anderchuk, Korea, and Solani. Oh, yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that draft class. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if there's going to be another bullshit one like uh, Geek Carbono. Well, Keith DeChuck's not in the Hall of Fame either. Yeah, that's true. So, Tim, do you have any comments you want to make about this episode before we head off into the close for another day? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Okay, this was a really fun episode, and I, I'm not surprised we got a lot out of it, but, you know, after all the weeks of the COVID stuff and everything, it's great to get back and talk about some Ottawa Senator stuff. Yeah, talk about fun hockey things. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it, because believe it, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network, where you can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter, at Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901HoneyBadger, and at GreatWayGipster, G-R-8-W-I-T-E, Gipster. If you want to shoot us an email... To give us your thoughts on today's episode for the top five actual good things from the 2019-2020 Ottawa Senators, shoot us an email, thirdlineplugsoundscast at gmail.com. So, Tim, 
we're going to continue talking about some Ottawa Senators over the next, next couple of episodes because our next episode is going to be one that I think some people are going to have some opinions about. Is that going to be, are some of those people going to be us? Yes. Our next episode is going to be the top five greatest Ottawa Senators of the 2010s. Oh. Is it Xenon Kanopka? Hmm. Xenon? Xenon Kanopka? That's a good choice. Uh, Bobby Butler? Oh, that's a solid choice right there. Maddie Character? Andy Sutton? Actually, you know what? Before we close it out, this past week, 10 years ago, the Andy Sutton, you're an expert moment happened on the 16th. We were at high school for that. Oh, God. The moment, the times that we referenced that over the next couple of months when we were in school. You know what's... I have my 10-year reunion coming up. I know. Mine, like, my 10th is going to be next year because I was the drag class after you. Yeah. Or the grad class. You're not drag class. Yeah, I think we're doing ours in August. I think. I wonder if we'll even get to do it. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, because it's not like we're a small class. No, that's true. I don't think any of our grad uh, classes, Jesus Christ, still got hockey on the mind. Our grad classes were really small. No. I guess the Q of A one was kind of small, but... Yeah, that's true. Actually, you know who would be a really good choice for the 2010 Greatest Sense? Pascal Claire. <laughs> Apparently, he's a cool dude. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, I know uh, one of the guys I work with uh, hangs out with Pascal Leclerc on the semi-reg. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they both live in Halifax. Apparently, Pascal Leclerc is a mean cook. Tim, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Cookout? No, that's a good idea, too. I'm thinking maybe we should try and get Pascal Leclerc to come on the podcast. I'd talk about cooking with Pascal Leclerc. Yeah. Oh, we should. We would ask him about uh, what, what pregame meal he would eat. Oh, not just pregame meal. We'll ask him about like, like <laughs> what's life like after the NHL and all that fun stuff. Yeah. At least, at least we're not going to mention. Hey, Pascal, what's it like to be injured by a dodgeball? Oh, that's just me, dude. I know. Until next time, guys. I am your host Taylor Gibson, and this has been Tim Jetsy. Go Sands, guys. Over and over and over and over again